Well, a special thanks to Bethel for this time over the weekend here. We are uh, very, very appreciative of the warm hospitality and reception that we've been given here this weekend, especially with the flexibility that has been demanded as a result of some of us being stranded in the United Kingdom for almost an extra week, and um, in God's providence, I was able to get back here and uh, wave at my family and go back to the airport and, and come to Chicago, but I'm very grateful to be with you here. Let me um, just make a couple of introductory comments, have a word of prayer, then I'm going to turn our attention to a particular text of Scripture this morning. By way of introduction, I would like to I guess, lay out for you why it is that we are even doing these conferences at Westminster that we're calling Full Confidence. There are devices in certain parts of the world at the bottom of the ocean that have a specific design and purpose, and that is to discern movement at the very bottom of the ocean to forewarn of tsunamis of tidal waves, and in some form or fashion, there is what we perceive to be a tidal wave of challenge to the doctrine of Scripture that is actually going to affect you in this congregation, in this community, in the coming years. And part of our responsibility as those in theological education, we believe is to, to function somewhat like those devices at the bottom of the ocean, to forewarn you that there is a tsunami coming in terms of challenge to that very source of our authority, to the scriptures themselves. If I could be a bit more explicit, under the banner of evangelicalism, Evangelical scholars are now wanting to put the scriptures in a place that make them much like any other book in which they are to be viewed first and foremost as human documents fraught with error and somehow God takes those documents and makes them relevant to us or makes them have spiritual impact upon us. You heard this morning in the sermon a very different view of the Scripture. Why? Because the Scriptures claim for themselves something very different. And we are convinced that it is our responsibility at Westminster not only to be faithful, to ground our students in an understanding of the authoritative nature of Scripture, but it is also our responsibility to alert the churches of this coming tsunami, if you will, at which the very core of your faith will be challenged. Now, there are great answers to the questions that are being raised by the quote-unquote evangelical scholarly world. There are trajectories in that scholarly world that are immensely troubling, and they're fraught with errors in and of themselves. But we believe the Word of God to be just that, God's very own Word. And you need not fear, you need not be worrying about this tsunami but what you do need to do is be fully grounded in your confidence in God's Word as His very divine revelation. So what I'm going to do this morning as we look at a particular text of Scripture, it really, it's a combination this morning of seeking to alert you, but also to exhort you 
to recognize the precious possession that we have in the revelation of God and His Word that He has spoken, He has not stuttered, and He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We're going to turn our attention this morning to a text of Scripture in Galatians chapter 1. If you would turn there, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to focus our attention. And as you're turning there, if you would, just bow your head with me and we will pray. It is easy, our God and Father, for us to slip into a position and posture of apathy. So often we take for granted the very possession of your written word that we can read without fear, that we can read without some sense of threat to our livelihood. That is not true of all people around the world. We have prayed already for those in Myanmar this morning and in that part of the world, those who are surrounded by Buddhism, surrounded by Islam, surrounded by animistic faiths, and indeed places where the government itself is threatening people who would call upon the name of Christ. And yet, oh God, we thank you that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, and that you have given us in your word a place in which we can turn to for confidence. And I do pray for this church that if there are any who have fallen asleep, have been lulled, that they would find their hearts quickened again in recognizing the extraordinary reality of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that is given to us in this written word. And I pray this morning as we are reminded from the Apostle Paul's pen that while he is the writer that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. And may we not look foolishly at these words as though they are merely human words, but to know them and read them and receive them as they really are, the very Word of God. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce this text of Scripture for just a minute by relaying actually a personal story. I actually spent two years at Wheaton College here just down the road. And uh, my first year at college, I sat in what about 500 other students joined me in, an early course at Wheaton that was required of all the students, and it was held in one of the large auditoriums there with theater-style seating. And I remember a particular professor who shall remain unnamed, who was pontificating his profundities as I was sitting in my chair in this theater-style seating. And as he began to pontificate further, his voice suddenly became somewhat like the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And suddenly it happened. I met what you might call the hypnagogic jerk. Now that was not a description of the guy that's sitting next to me. That is that experience when you fall asleep and suddenly your body just lurches. 
And in that moment, my clipboard, which was sitting on my lap, went flying, as did my pen and my notebook. And they hit the tile floor, a floor much like this one. And I think all 499 other students in the classroom turned and looked at me as I had fallen asleep in my chair. And it was one of those moments that you might describe as Southwest Airlines would put it so, you want to get away. <laughs> now being a teacher and a preacher, I am no stranger to people falling asleep. You know who you are. Better yet, Pastor Troxel knows who you are. But you know, as we look at the text of Scripture that we're addressing this morning, the Apostle Paul is a lot less concerned about people falling asleep in church as he is about those falling asleep in service of the church. And there are two ways that we find in the book of Galatians at which the people of God are tempted to fall asleep, if I could categorize them this way. There is moral sleep and there is doctrinal sleep. I'll address that more fully in just a minute, but I would like for you to read along with me in Galatians 1, starting in verse 1, and I will read actually through verse 10. Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to the people, even in the first century, being lulled into immorality, the tragedy of people following after their own lusts rather than following their Lord, in some ways, those of you who have been in spiritual leadership in some form or another, those who are pastors, are very much aware of what seems sometimes as a systematic march of people into the pathways of persistent rebellion. Indeed, in some cases, the bookshelves of a pastor's mind are lined with volumes of the stories of tragic marches into decadence. But with equal gravity and weight, the Apostle Paul, is, as he addresses the 
churches of Galatia is not concerned only about their moral response to the gospel, but about the purity of the gospel message itself. He is deeply concerned about the church nodding off into theological error. Now this can occur in a number of ways. Let me, instead of addressing the particular ways in Paul's day, let me talk briefly, if I may, about the ways in which this occurs in our Western culture. Those of you who have studied philosophy will know the name Immanuel Kant, 18th and 19th, early, early, early 19th century philosopher, The influence of Kant, frankly, has not merely been on the West. It is now, as I'm discovering and interacting with people in Eastern cultures, the educated people, even of China themselves, not only have read Kant, but they assume what we call the dimensionalism of Kant, that there is a religious area and there is a non-religious area, that we compartmentalize our lives. How frequently is it in our 20th and 21st century cultures in Western thought that somehow we view the religious aspect of our lives as merely a category rather than recognizing that all of our life falls under the lordship of Jesus Christ and that the gospel penetrates every aspect of our existence. Postmodernism is another way in which we are seeing the gospel challenged as John made mention this morning about the way in which truth has been relativized and has taken a notion and an identity that truth is defined by my own perceptions and my own sense of reality. And yet now in the 20th again and now into the 21st century, the scholarly world has truly moved in a direction, even in evangelical circles, of seeking or at least affecting a confidence in God's word is that into which we can and indeed must believe. For the Apostle Paul, he was concerned, not only concerned, he was absolutely agitated as he begins this letter, as he considers the need for the purity of the gospel as that which comes from above. So why is it that the Apostle Paul in his first century context, why is it we now in the United States of America and indeed around the world, why is it that we not only can have full confidence in God's word, why must we? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear from out of the gate here that the message that he preached was not his own. He sees himself very consciously as one who receives the message, as one who is a recipient, as one who, as he puts it in many places, as a steward of the things of God. This is not something that Paul invented. His notion of the gospel was not some creative genius on his part, but it was the life-giving, freedom-bearing gospel of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, as he considered the gospel from above, described Galatians this way. He says, the Galatians epistle is my epistle. 
He says, to it I am as it were in wedlock. It is my Catherine. He loved the epistle of the Galatians because in it Martin Luther found the freedom. A freedom not that was conjured up from within him, but a freedom that comes from God in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say? Why is it that we must have confidence in the gospel? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Notice, first of all, the source of the gospel. The gospel is from God. The gospel is from God. It is his gospel. I love in the epistle of Romans. Trace this out, if you will, sometime. You'll notice that Paul begins by describing the gospel as the gospel of God. But as he describes this gospel in a couple of places in Romans after he's expressed it as a gospel from above, a gospel from God, he calls it my gospel. Because Paul recognizes that the death and work, I'm sorry, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a life, death, and resurrection for him, that the gospel of God was his own possession, not because he made it, but because it was given to him. Paul here in Galatians 1 begins by describing the gospel as the gospel from God. If you read Galatians 1 and 2, you'll find Paul actually seemingly a bit defensive If you read it, you'll see Paul describing himself as as an apostle. He's he's defending his apostleship. And it might lead you on first reading to say, Paul, you're feeling a little insecure about your apostleship. But you need to recognize that wasn't Paul feeling insecure. That wasn't why he was defending his apostleship. He was defending his apostleship because he had a full understanding that his apostleship was something that God had given him. And so by defending his apostleship, he is defending the character of the gospel as a gospel that was from above. It was the gospel of God. You know, Paul had an extraordinary background, great instruction. He knew the Old Testament law like the back of his hand. He was, as he puts it, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But Paul does not look to his own philosophical brilliance or his education or his pedigree, Paul looks with full confidence to the gospel. Why? Because he didn't produce it. He preached it. He didn't define it. He declared it. He didn't invent it. He inherited it. Paul didn't spin the gospel. He saw it as something that he was to submit to. Let me introduce another philosopher for just a minute. Many of you will know the name Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham was a British philosopher. He was an economist. He was a lawyer. He was what we describe today as the father of modern utilitarian ethics. Now, Bentham, if you know anything about him, again, an 18th and early 19th century philosopher, he was an extraordinary child prodigy. He at age three, was reading vast tomes. By age four, he had mastered Latin. 
Um, he also, as it might not surprise you, as he developed his intellect, became, I guess we could put it, somewhat confident in his own brilliance. So much so that as he led the philosophical society, of which J.S. Mills was also a part, when Bentham was about to die, he insisted with those within that community of the philosophical society that they actually dissect his body and then have his head mummified. Now, why did he want his head mummified? Well, he wanted his head mummified because he was convinced that he needed to still be present in the philosophical society so that when they would have their meetings, they could actually prop his mummified head up in the meetings so that he could still have a say, if you will, and have influence on those within that philosophical society. There is fairly substantiated rumor that at one point some of the students at the university well, after his head had been mummified, stole the head from the, the, the university and went out at midnight and had a fine game of soccer with this mummified head. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, I think it fits very well with Paul's notion of the gospel in this way. Because in any way in which we, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, want to have a say in the gospel. We are propping up our own dead hearts and minds and saying, God, I still want to have a say in this matter. This is precisely what I see going on in the scholarly guild in which the scholars have refused to put themselves underneath the authority of the Scriptures, but instead look down on them and trust their own cognitive abilities, their intellectual proficiencies, their own schematics, and they look at the Scripture and say, I will force the Scripture into my understanding. And what are they doing? They're effectively propping up their own dead wisdom rather than submitting to the Word of God, the Gospel of God. How deeply rooted is it in our sinful hearts that we look at God above and say, I want to have a say in the Gospel. I want it to be the way I want it to be. I'll never forget, I was about 25 years ago, I was in prison visiting a young man who, for a series of circumstances, found himself behind bars. Went and visited him there in the prison cell, and, or at the prison, and sat across one of those tables with the, the glass between us. I spent about an hour with him there, and I'll never forget this statement that he said to me at the very end of our conversation. He looked at me and he said, I know what God wants, and I know what I want. And I'm going to do what I want. Now, most of us would never be so bold and brazen to say that. And yet, how often is it that we want to prop up our own wisdom and say, I'll do the gospel my way? And the Apostle Paul here says that if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one 
that we have received, that we have preached, let him literally be damned. Let him be accursed. The purity of the gospel is that it is God's gospel. Do not ever forget the precious possession that you have as a recipient of the gospel of God. I think some of us need to have our mummified heads and hearts kicked around the soccer field. I think some of those in the scholarly community need to have their heads and hearts kicked around a bit in submitting to the authority of God's word, the gospel of God itself. Paul recognizes the gospel as God's gospel. Look what else he says. It's not only from God, but the gospel is also by God. Let me just read verses 3 through 9 one more time. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you know anything about the letters of Paul, you'll remember that Paul constantly in his letters opens up his letters with commendation to the churches. Paul is a pastor at heart. And he knows that before you are to express your concern or to address with exhortation or to reprimand that the first point of entry ought to be able to extol and and encourage those along the way of their faithfulness. The one letter of Paul that we have in the New Testament that he doesn't do that is Galatians. Why? I've seen in this congregation a number of families with small children. I have six children of my own and my youngest is now six, but I want you to imagine your three-year or four-year-old daughter. You've dolled up. She's got her hair all nicely done. She's wearing her summer dress. And you'll go out for a walk down the street. And your daughter unwittingly moves out into the street, the busy street in front of you, just before a bus is about to pass. Now, is that a moment at which you shout at your daughter, oh, honey, you look so beautiful in your dress. Your hair looks so nice. No, that is a moment at which you do everything within your power to rescue her from the oncoming bus. Paul looks at the churches of Galatia and sees them getting ready to get hit by a bus. It is not a time to commend them. It is not a time to encourage them. It is a time to alert them to the fact that seeping in doctrinally is a false gospel. A gospel that's not from above. A gospel that is not centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is turning their attention back to the gospel. What is that gospel? Look again in verse 3 and 4. The gospel from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Notice that the gospel is accomplished by God. It is a work of God in Christ 
It is a gospel that is sourced in God. It is a gospel that is accomplished by God. Notice that it is God in Christ who gives himself for our sins to deliver us. There is no place for the human heart to pump self-interest here. The center of the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God Almighty, God our Heavenly Father, has exalted Jesus and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Gospel is all from God. It is all by God. It is done by Him on behalf of us, His people. How serious is this. Look at verse 6. Don't miss this. Notice that the twisting, contorting, or perversion of the gospel is a personal matter. Look at it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You see, the perversion and the contortion of the gospel is not merely a challenge to some sort of abstract concept. It is not merely a challenge to a message. But so connected is the message and truth and historic reality of the gospel that to pervert the gospel is to turn your back on God himself. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you? Why is it that we must speak forthrightly? Why must we proclaim with purity and clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is because the purity of the gospel is a reflection of the purity of the God who has given it. It is not a place for us to provide spin. It is not a place for us to stand on our soapboxes. And for us to emphasize what we think ought to be emphasized. As John put for us this morning in the language of the herald, it is the herald's job to actually to deliver the message. It is our job as the messengers of Jesus Christ, as those on that divine, divine errand of mercy, if you will, in missions and evangelism. It is our responsibility to convey the truth of Jesus Christ with purity and with accuracy. Why? Because it is God's gospel. It's not first ours. The purity of the gospel is a critical matter because it is God's gospel. It is from Him and it is by Him in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, how does this then affect us in the church directly? Well, there, Boy, I could look at a host of ways in which we could see this fleshed out. Let me provide one that has gained great traction in the evangelical church in, in the recent years. Some of you will know the name Charles Sheldon, who wrote in 1896 the famous book In His Steps, which about 100 years later was, was republished and became very, very popular, so much so that Many of our young people began wearing these wristbands saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, if you know anything about Charles Sheldon, Charles Sheldon was profoundly influenced by what we might describe as the social gospel. Or to put it in Paul's language, that this is another gospel, even though there really is no other gospel. 
And Charles Sheldon, under the influence of Walter Rauschenbusch and others who were involved in the social gospel push in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, created the the notion of the gospel as something that is merely a deed matter. It has to do first and foremost with social justice. So it was about what would Jesus do? What is the example that Jesus gives to us? Well, I would suggest to you that that is a very dangerous perversion of the gospel if that is the way in which we exhaust the gospel. The question is not first and foremost, what would Jesus do? The question is first and foremost, what did Jesus do? We cannot begin to ask the implications ethically or socially until we have come to terms with the message of the gospel centered in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul directs us. We must not minimize the uniqueness of the gospel. We must not change it. We must not spin it. Well, there's much more I could say there, but in the interest of time, let's move on. Not only is the gospel from God, it is a gospel, secondly, that is by God, but I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice the, what we might describe as the doxology of Paul here? Throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul, you will see him Speaking theology in very prayerful, worshipful language. I find myself, when I, when I think about Paul this way, in his grotesquely abusive run-on sentence in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14. through 14, One sentence. But how does Paul begin in that marvelous exposition of the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He begins this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on and on and on and describes the riches of the blessing of the gospel in Jesus Christ, the pure gospel that is centered in King Jesus. Well, notice the doxology here. Did you ever think about the fact that the gospel is not only from God, it is not only by God, but it is ultimately for God? How often do we speak of the gospel as something that is ultimately for us? Do you realize that we were made in God's image and are restored into the image of God through the work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit, not so that we can be glorified, but that God may be glorified? We are made and redeemed for His glory. And one of the often subtle but critical components of a pure articulation of the gospel is that when we recognize that it is from God, when we recognize that it is by God, and when we recognize that it is for God, it will change the very attitude with which we speak of and the way in which we convey the gospel message. If I could return for just a moment to the scholarly guild for just a minute. The scholarly world has lost that notion of transcendence and worship in its articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That somehow 
rather than the glory be given to God, the glory is to be given to me because I have created some new or fresh approach to the gospel. Oh, may my name be praised. I often, when I speak to those in the scholarly community, speak of Christian scholarship in terms of a scantily clad mistress that tempts us to flirt with her. And we believe that, to use the language of Proverbs 7, that like this young man can walk down the street of the temptress and the adulteress and somehow remain unstained. The scholarly community has, in, in large measure, believed that we can flirt with the temptress and still be faithful to our wives. The only way in which we will be faithful in the scholarly world, faithful in the church, is when we recognize that our existence and our redemption, that the gospel itself is for the glory of Almighty God, not for us. The pure articulation of the gospel is a gospel that is from God. It is a gospel that is accomplished by God through his son, Jesus Christ. But it is for him and his glory. I don't think I could overstate my warning to you this morning about being on guard for what you may hear coming down the pike. There is a tsunami coming in the evangelical church. If you read about evangelicalism today, you will discover that evangelicalism doesn't even know what it is. The term has essentially lost its meaning. One of the things I so deeply appreciate about our confessional tradition is that we recognize that we have a confession on which we stand, a confession that is rooted in the authority of the Word of God. But that is not something that we ought to bear with arrogance. It is something that we need to recognize with humility. As a church here in the Chicago area, I would ask you to pray, not only for Westminster, but pray for the church worldwide. Because one of the things that has happened in theological education around the world, and indeed in the mission of the church worldwide, is that many of the issues through internet technology and other means that used to be isolated issues, isolated to the West, are now, have, they've become worldwide issues. Heresy has a way of rearing its ugly head in similar forms all around the world. And the things about which I'm concerned today, about the purity of the gospel, recognizing the purity of the word, is something that is not an American or a North American phenomenon. It is a worldwide evangelical phenomenon. And it is time for God's people to get on our knees and pray. To pray for the church, to pray for the proclamation of the gospel, to be faithful, to recognize that it is first and foremost God's gospel. It is from him, it is by him, and it is for him. Would you join me in prayer as we close? We are not worthy, O oh God, to be the recipients of this gospel. 
And yet you in your infinite love, by your infinite wisdom, have seen fit in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the glory and purity of His obedience, by the uniting work of your Spirit, have declared that we are your beloved children in your beloved Son. I pray, O God, for the purity of the Gospel to saturate this church, that the urgency of the proclamation of that Gospel would consume this church, and that you would, O God, in your wisdom, enable us by your grace to not be guilty either by morality or by doctrinal failure to pervert the gospel. But instead, may we humbly receive that which you have given. Humbly proclaim with clarity and power that which you have given. And then humbly live in the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes again. We thank you that you, O God, are faithful to your promises because you will not and cannot deny yourself. Thank you that you have given us your word, that it is your word, it is your gospel, and because that is so, we must have full confidence. May we leave this place with renewed vigor, renewed commitment to live in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.